Do you wish it was easier managing your company's finances? Why is filing accounts so painful? Well, that's the reason we've partnered with Intuit QuickBooks, who make it really easy for founders and their companies to stay on top of their finances. And that goes for sole traders too. QuickBooks can save up to seven hours a week on your finance admin. Seven hours! They do a bunch of things to help. Whatever stage of your business, from centralizing all your docs for your self-assessment to making it easy to do payroll for your staff, from invoicing to effective time tracking. QuickBooks is a one-stop shop that gives you the tools you need to take care of your business. But they also provide an end-to-end view of your company's financials, which means you can make better business decisions. It's simple to use. You can get started in just 15 minutes. So if you want to take control of your finances, then head to quickbooks.co.uk forward slash secret leaders. That's quickbooks.co.uk forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. You know, startup was continuous pressure. Using this credit control tool for invoice finance, nobody else would ever do this because it's not was not an easy product to build. We're always like running out of money and then having to raise more investment. One of our investors said we were like a cockroach company because we wouldn't die, and that was apparently a compliment. That's Stephen Renwick, co-founder of Satago, a platform that helps businesses get paid faster. He founded the company in 2012 and raised nearly three million pounds in total. But in 2017, he had to try and sell it after it became insolvent. So what happened? From Secret Leaders, I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is our bite-sized series dedicated to failure. We're doing this because we learn a lot more from failure than success, but we hardly ever hear about it. We're changing that with the help of entrepreneurs like Stephen sharing their worst moments. Stephen has a family business in the construction sector, which is notorious for late payment to suppliers. This gave him the idea for Satago, which started as a way to crowdsource data about when companies were getting paid and use that to make real-time credit reports. He developed the idea and Satago was actually one of the very first companies to raise money on the equity crowdfunding platform Cedars. The idea pivoted quite a lot because this whole crowdsource data idea was very noble, it was quite popular, but it had this massive chicken and egg problem. Nobody was going to submit data to a system which was empty. So the technology pivoted into an active credit control tool. So it would connect into your accounting software, then take over the process of chasing your customers for payment. So it would automate it for them because a lot of the time, the reason companies weren't getting paid is because they didn't have time to chase their customers for payment. And then where it maybe becomes interesting for this story, is when we made the next pivot because I always knew that the real um, exciting thing about this was the data. It was always a big data play. I thought that what we can do is we have all this information about people's invoices. We know how good they are at collecting their invoices. We can actually control how quickly they get paid. We're in the perfect position to actually finance those invoices and do um, what's called invoice financing and effectively give uh, our, our users 80, 85% of the value of their invoice upfront, improve their cash flow, and then we would take a, a percentage of the invoice value. So classic invoice uh, financing is not a new model, but doing it in a value-add technology platform certainly was. Stephen had pivoted Satago again, this time effectively changing it from a technology business to a finance business. And that completely changed the dynamics of the business. It changed... Um, 
the funding requirements of the business, uh, it just changed everything about it. What actually happened is we we had to raise extra investment, um, obviously, to to become a um, a proper uh, finance business. We made the mistake uh, at the time of doing this as balance sheet lending. That means we were actually doing the lending to those customers. Many of the other kind of fintech players you saw at the time were effectively a marketplace. They weren't actually doing the lending. They were just connecting to other people that were doing the lending. But because we were doing a very, very scalable, high throughput model, that didn't really work because we could finance very small invoices because the system was so efficient. But because we'd become this finance business, we yeah we had needed to raise debt as well as equity. So normally when you raise money, you're selling part of the business and the shareholders now own um, part of your business. But we uh, needed to raise debt as well. And at the time, what we did was a convertible debt round with them. If you're not familiar with convertible debt, the difference is that it's debt that you take into the business with the idea that that later converts to equity. It's often used, particularly in the US, because it's a much faster way of taking investment. It means you theoretically don't have to do a valuation just now. And later when you do an investment round, it will convert into equity. However, it can have a hidden uh, sting in the tail as we discovered. The business continued to grow and then they raised more investment, this time an equity round. But Stephen had a problem. Raising investment for this new business was very, very difficult because we were now a finance business. My entire network was tech investors but tech investors don't want their money to be used for lending, right? They give money for building tech products or for scaling sales and marketing. They don't give money to lend out. So the challenge we had was if you're doing lending, you have to get debt, but the debt people want you to have a certain amount of equity as the first loss. They don't want to lose money. They're very risk averse. So getting this balance between people that would give you debt and people that give you equity was extremely difficult. There's not many people that will do that. We found someone, we found one investment fund that would do this, but they weren't really used to such early stage companies. And we did a um, so-called tranched investment. They'd raised 1.6 million pounds, but as a tranched investment, meaning they wouldn't get it all at once. Rather, it would be released in stages as long as the company hit the required milestones. Now, if you look in like VCs, blogs and stuff like that, just Google tranched investment VC, you will see VCs unanimously saying it's a terrible idea because you never hit the milestones, really. You don't hit the milestones because you're always ridiculously optimistic when you're submitting your business plan to the VCs. And it just changes the focus. And Instead of actually aiming long-term for success, you're too concerned about hitting the next milestone and you can't actually, it makes things like hiring difficult. You think you've got a year and a half runway, but actually you've got nine months runway. So it really is a bad, bad idea. It means every time you get to this milestone, you have to um, effectively beg your investors to waive the milestone requirements. It's a tale as old as time. They didn't hit the milestones that were set for them. So the first time the investor said, hey, okay, we'll, uh, we'll waive the, uh, the milestone requirements. Um, the second time that happened, uh, they decided not to. Um, they decided they, they would invest, but under terms that I thought were unacceptable. 
it wouldn't have made sense for us as founders to continue working with the business. Stephen had to find an investor to resume his business fast. So this guy who's a, who's a, like a, a highly experienced um, fintech investor invested, uh, loaned us effectively money, which got us through Christmas. This was Christmas 2016, I think. So we got through Christmas, uh, which was nice. And then come January, he was meant to give us another tranche of money. And then nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. And I was following this guy thinking, what the heck's going on? He's like, why is he not sending us the next tranche of money? And then I realized that the guy did not have access to as much money as he thought he did. And I suddenly had no more funds for the business. And, you know, all along, I'd been very careful about, you know, speaking to our lawyer, making sure that we were doing everything legally, because it's very, you know, it's very wrong to trade if you're insolvent, which we by that point were. But if you think you have, you know, a realistic chance of raising investment, then you're, you're not actually technically insolvent. But once we, I realized this guy didn't have any money, I realized we were insolvent. So uh, we called in uh, the insolvency practitioners and started a process to try and do a prepackaged administration deal, i.e. selling the business, which is, you know, quite an uh, unfortunate but relatively common process. There was a UK fintech company to buy the assets. They did their due diligence and put in a bid. But here's where that sting in the tail comes in, from the convertible debt round they did earlier. Because they were actually debt holders, and they were the largest debt holder, they had the right to issue a winding up petition on us. That's when a debt holder thinks something is going on, I want to get my money, I'll basically take you to court and force you into administration. And it means that we actually ended up, they kind of stopped the insolvency process even though the insolvency process is what you're, you're meant to be doing anyway. Now, this company that had done their due diligence and wanted to buy us was so determined to buy us that they paid for Queen's Council to take the case and take it to court. And we challenged this winding up petition. Now, conventionally speaking, this investor that had issued the winding up uh, petition was, you know, they were in their, within their rights. However, it didn't actually make sense because there was an offer on the table and the offer on the table would have returned some money to some of the creditors and it would have kept all the employees going, it would have kept the employees paid and it would have meant all the customers, you know, basically business continuity. So it turned into like a full day proper court case with the guys in wigs, you know, arguing with each other. And this was on a Friday. And at the end of the Friday, we got the news, we won. It's like, hooray, well, we, you know, I, 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 what we thought was a good outcome to a bad process, this company had won the case, they'd be able to buy us and everyone would get their salaries and the business would, you know, the, the company would be over, but the business would continue. That's what we thought would happen. However, this concluded too late on a Friday afternoon for us to actually sign the papers. Over the weekend, I started getting phone calls from this private equity fund that had learned on the grapevine that we are having these financial difficulties and said, hey, is there anything we can do to help? And I was like, well, you're kind of too late. The process is kind of over. Turns out the process wasn't over because they threw all their people into a room over the weekend, did all their due diligence in like one weekend and came in on the Monday with a much higher offer. And the administrators are legally obliged to accept the highest offer. Yeah, so although these other guys had paid a large sum of money for a lot of due diligence and Queen's Council court case for a day, 
they were suddenly out. And this other private equity fund that I knew, I knew, I knew of them, I'd spoken to them before, they suddenly swooped in and um, bought us. A pretty crazy series of events. On Friday, they were going to be sold to one company and on Monday, they were sold to a completely different company. Whilst he is happy the business got sold in the end, it was a difficult journey for Stephen. The pressure was massive. In January, we couldn't pay uh, the employees. And, you know, testament to the team that we had built, but nobody walked away when we couldn't pay them. Everyone stayed with the team and kept working to keep things going with the hope that we would manage this administration deal. And when the administration deal went through, by that point, it was a relief because I could pay salaries and you know, I could um, keep doing business for all those poor companies that were using us for their finance. But then I'd, you know, I'd lost my, my baby. You know, Satago was an, was an idea that I had had for years and it was gone. I was like, this is my, this is my big idea. My big chance is gone. And yeah, I was, I was kind of, you know, sad. The good thing is that the, the people that bought Satago were very, very good investors. They had much deeper pockets. They've invested a lot of money in it. They brought in a very competent CEO, presumably a lot more competent than I was. And now it seems to be doing pretty well. That's quite an odd thing to experience because I still follow the business. A lot of people still associate it with me. And I see it winning prizes on stage. You know, they seem to win a prize or something every month or so. So it's really, yeah, really seems to be doing very well. Stephen has gone on to build another business. In 2021, he co-founded Tilo, a startup that specialises in helping tech scale-ups radically transform their data infrastructure efficiency. What are the lessons he learned from his experience with Satago? Don't do finance if you don't have a finance background. Like finance just should not be done by people who have not worked in finance. I mean, maybe if you bring someone in who has worked in finance, it can work, but you shouldn't do that. Um, have the right investors for your business model. Um, all the investors I, I knew were tech investors, whereas once we'd made this pivot, we were a finance business. We needed a different type of investors. Um, I probably should have done a different investment deal giving away a lot more of the company because you got you get locked into this idea that you only give away 20% of your business in each investment round. That doesn't really work for a actual finance business. So I had another investment offers before which I'd turned down, which I probably um, should have accepted. Then, you know, sales and marketing, we just weren't good enough at it. What we could have done was just been a lot more aggressive. We should have been doing much, much harder cold customer acquisition. The difficulty we had was with the product is that it was like a it was like a three in one product because you had you had this credit control tool which worked really well people loved it then you had credit risk data integrated into the product which was also really cool um, but a lot of small businesses didn't care and then you had the invoice finance which was what you were actually going to make money from and promoting this um, three in one product was really really difficult so the messaging was quite difficult and. Just this, this, uh, this uh, convertible debt sting in the tail thing. It's not that I would have done it differently. It's just worthwhile pointing out to people that convertible debt isn't as innocuous as it might pretend to be. It is still debt. Stephen Renwick. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. And you've been listening to our Bite Size series dedicated to failure. 
you want to hear more stories of failure, setbacks, and how they impact success, then give us a follow on your podcast app and share the episode with someone who needs to hear it. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.